Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Eigelmiller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. All right. So today we are talking with Emily Sanders. Um, She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And we are so excited that she is here. Emily, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, I'm so excited to be here with you both. Yes. Um, so we're going to kind of just jump right in. And um, we us- we usually like to start by asking our guests a little bit about their own mental health journey. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, like you mentioned, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. So formally educated in the areas of mental health, but in terms of my own journey, um, you know, I first gave counseling a shot when I was in undergrad and it wasn't the best experience, but I didn't know any better. Um, at the time I was dealing with some mental health issues of my own and I really wanted help. And so I was willing to stick through with my therapist who, well, that was an interesting experience. You can ask me about that later (laughs) if you want, but it was such a gift when I got to graduate school and started learning about mental health and was able to, I guess, date a few therapists and finally found the best clinician. And so I've been with my therapist for um, eight years now. Some seasons I've seen her more than others, but it's been a gift to do couples therapy with my husband and, you know, work on um, my own anxiety and perfectionism. Um, But then also now just personal growth. So I'm a big advocate for therapy, obviously. So the one thing you talked to you, you mentioned in there, which I love is you talked about the date, you dating, dating a therapist. (laughs) Yes. Talk a little bit more about that. Cause we think that's a, I personally um, did that after my husband passed away. I, um, I went out and did all the work for my, my children and myself to, we had, a, I probably had about 10, 10 minute sessions with multiple therapists mm. to evaluate. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lot. I know. Um, I think for me, my first few therapists, I just scheduled a quick session over the phone or I, I made a phone call and I basically just showed up for the session. And I remember with one of the ladies just thinking, this feels so off. And I remember trying to tell her something that was upsetting me. And she said, oh, no, that's fine. It's normal. And I was trying to explain to her why I knew it was not normal. And she just kept dismissing me. And I went back to the director of my graduate program. And I said, how long do you think it takes to find out if your therapist is the right one for you? And she said, oh, Emily, if you're asking that question, I think that tells you something. And so I didn't show up for my next appointment. And um, it, unfortunately it does take some work to find a good therapist. Mm-hmm. Not all therapists are the same. We don't all work the same. We don't all have the same approach. We have not all done our same amount of personal therapy ourselves. 
So um, just like seeing any physician, some are outstanding at what they do and others are good enough at what they do and some just stink. <laughs> and so unfortunately, I think that for people trying therapy the first time, they have to know going into it that they have the right as a consumer to not just see anybody mm-hmm. and um, to know that if something doesn't feel right, that they don't have to go back and that there is the perfect fit for them out there. But it does take some work. Yeah, And that's a bummer, especially when you're in a real mental health crisis. It's different than just wanting to do the personal work and you have the energy to call around. But it's tough if you're in the middle of a real crisis and hardly have the capacity. So that is unfortunate. Yeah. But I, but I think it, it's good for people to recognize that it might take a little bit of time to find the right person. And that's all right. Yeah, definitely. So you talked a little bit about uh, your journey a little bit and tell us how you got into the marriage and, um, and family therapy, um, segment of the, of, of therapy. Honestly, I feel like it was an accident. I would love to say that I was the most driven human. Um, but with my upbringing, I don't know. My parents never asked me what I wanted to be when I was when I grew up and I was raised in a very traditional household. And I think growing up, there was kind of the expectation that I would get married and have children. I never saw anything else for myself. So when I was in the last year of college, I was sitting in a counseling class. I was doing some nonprofit work and it clicked. I want to help people better. I think I need to become a counselor. I didn't even know what that meant. The world of therapy was foreign to me. Um, and I got into graduate school and it was like everything was firing off inside me at once. I feel like I was created for this work. And I don't know that it that it happens like that for everybody. But for me, I feel like I am so blessed to have come into a profession that I love with all my heart. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so passionate about it. And I think my brain is just wired for this kind of work. So I wish I had a more beautiful, articulate, inspiring story, but golly, it kind of feels (laughs) like I fell into it. Well, you talk about that. You love it. What do you love about it? Go into detail about that. Sure. Well, intellectually, it's very stimulating. Like I love thinking about thinking. I love putting pieces together Um, it is very, very fun. I really like doing more analytical work. So I like doing long-term work with my clients. So that looks like exploring their past and present and making connections and using metaphors. And if a client wants to bring in a dream, sure, we'll do that too. So it's fun for my brain, but also I just think that it's so important, um, part of the reason I do think I love this field is because um, how valuable it is to have somebody that listens to us and cares about us and um, is able to have a deep conversation with us. The growth that therapy brings, it's beautiful. I, I think that it is very special that people come to me with the most sacred and painful and ugly parts of their life and that I get to be in those with them. So for me, it's a huge honor. I love that part of it too. Um, I also am so thankful for all that my clients have taught me. 
I have learned so much from this work just because of hearing other people's experiences and it has forced me to grow. And for that, I'm so grateful for it's shown me different pieces of advocacy that are still needed. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I could go on and on, but yep. That's great. So um, I, I always, I, I think a lot of people ask us, you know, like what the, the different kinds of therapy, how is it different? Talk a little bit about um, family and marriage um, therapy, what that involves. What are, what are the elements? Well, sure. So it kind of depends. So for therapists, we have all different kinds of degrees. I don't know if I'd say degrees, but different areas of focus and how we tend to work. Mm -hmm. For marriage and family therapists, our education revolves around who is the air quote identified patient, who is the, the person that is needing help. But how do they fit into their family system? So rather than just seeing the person as an individual, we're also trying to figure out um, how has this person's family impacted them? How has their marriage impacted them? And how are they impacting their family, you know, and, um, and their marriage and their friendships and their children? For me, I mean, it's great that we have personal growth. I love that. But if we grow personally, but it doesn't push us closer to the people that we love, I think we're missing a lot of the points. So mm. um, that is always in the back of my mind. Now, how treatment ends up looking, that depends on the therapist. So some people come and they want to do short-term work and they just want to you know, get me through the breakup with my boyfriend and then I want to leave. And that's totally fine. They don't want to do necessarily any longer term work. Mm -hmm. And, and you can find therapists that offer that. There are some therapists that work and they want to just focus on how you're thinking. What are your thoughts doing and how do your thoughts impact you? Um, so there's, there's all different types of ways that we approach helping our clients. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, I like what you mentioned about like, oh, this, this can just help me like get over my breakup or whatever. So when I first was like hearing about like different types of therapy and I heard marriage and family therapy, I was like, oh, it's just about relationships, but obviously it is so much more. Um, and I'm kind of interested to hear who can really benefit most from marriage and family therapy as opposed to maybe like cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that? Well, okay. So marriage and as a marriage and family therapist, the majority of my clients are individuals. I do see couples for sure. And then when I have teens, I'll bring their parents in sometime. But for the most part, it is individual work for sure. Mm -hmm. Cognitive behavioral therapy, though, typically revolves just around the individual. So am I allowed to say that I'm not a huge fan of cognitive behavioral therapy? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to step on anybody's toes. And there's a place for it. And I use pieces of it in my work. But in my work as a therapist, most most people understand that their thoughts are off. I, I really think most people are smart enough to already know the things that they think are probably not super true. <laughs> so for me, as a psychodynamic therapist, I feel more curious about, well, then 
where did these thoughts come from? And how are they? And I care very much about our feelings. So much of our behavior is driven by feelings. Our thoughts usually come after our feelings and not vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I'm directly answering your question, but but uh, anybody can benefit from being with the marriage and family therapist. So, um, so are the majority of your, um, of your patients, um, in a certain age category, do you find, or is it really mixed? It's pretty mixed. And I've noticed that in my practice, I go through waves and seasons. I've gotten to the point, especially because I have children of my own that I don't take children any longer. And I'm pretty selective of the teenagers that I take in part just because there's so much more work involved with that in terms of you know advocating maybe for the my um, client at their school or touching in with a psychiatrist or filling parents in because of the season that I'm in with my own parenting it is challenging for me to have a lot of extra time to do that work outside of the sessions mm-hmm. um, but right now in my practice I have a lot of 20 and 30 year olds which I love but I've had a client as old as 87 yeah, so awesome <laughs> yeah but it can be harder to get older individuals into therapy meaning, not old, but anybody really over the age of 45, they're raised in the environment that you only go to therapy if there's something dramatically or traumatically wrong and they're missing out. And that's so unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about that. So, uh, you know, as a society, that's very true that, that we've had this mindset that unless you're in crisis, that you don't go to therapy. Um, where in reality, uh, people could be a lot better off if they were actually working on their relationships or their mm-hmm. themselves. Um, you know, I think everybody should be going to therapy at some point. Same. <laughs> but when you're when you're thinking about that, um, is there a way? Do you do you have a way that you like to talk to people that have that mindset to convince them that this is something that's really important? It will change their life. <sighs> No, (laughs) it's, I, I mean, I'm a walking advocate for therapy all the time. Um, But it is hard for people that are very adamant against going. I will just simply say, but what if you did get something out of it? Mm -hmm. And what if you were curious about yourself? Mm -hmm. And, and um, it's really hard Therapy doesn't work if you're not curious about yourself and I cannot make people curious about themselves. So I, I learned that long ago and I've decided to save my energy for the people that really want to do that kind of work. Obviously I'm always telling everyone, well, you should go to therapy. Oh, I love my therapist. Oh, you'd get a lot out of it. Oh, too bad. You're missing out. Even with my own parents, I'm pushing them all the time, but unfortunately, you know, you can't make anybody go. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, that's, you know, we, we talk a lot as an organization, we work a lot with youth. Um, so we're, we're putting mental health education programs into schools. Um, and we say all the time that we believe that youth will change this conversation faster than yeah. the adult population. Yes. Um, because they, they don't have those, they don't have those barriers that you find in, in older generations. It is much harder to unlearn than just to learn. 
And so that doesn't mean that we give up on the older generation, but also if we're trying to figure out, I think like you've noticed, Nancy, Mm -hmm. where effort's going to be best received. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So who do you, who do you find benefits the most from, from your, um, from their sessions, younger people, or like when you meet, when you finally convince an older person that they need to come into (laughs) it, do they benefit more because they have, uh, they finally open their mind to it. <laughs> well, again, I'm not going out and dragging anybody in at the point that people call me they're they're ready, but the conversation is different. So I've noticed when I'm speaking with a 20 or 30 something, they're usually hesitant and a little anxious, but they're excited. And they'll usually say things like, "Oh, I've been thinking about doing this for a while," and they're ready to hop in. My older clients, well, they'll say things like, well, I'm not really sure if I need it. I mean, do you, does it sound like I should be here? How do you think it's going to help? And so helping them understand, hey, it sounds like you're making a great call. It sounds like you have a lot going on, but either way, this is a great place for you to be. Mm-hmm. And they're always wondering, am I doing it right? <laughs> oh, there's no right or wrong way to do it. They yeah. just need a little more comfort about being there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's say like somebody is looking to get into therapy, but they don't really know exactly like what type of therapist to look for. Um, What would be a good indication that they should go and see a marriage and family therapist? I don't think that they need to worry about the degree. So it doesn't matter if they're a licensed professional counselor. It doesn't matter if they are a licensed marriage and family therapist. It doesn't matter if they're a licensed clinical social worker. I would tell people not to be as worried about that particular type of degree as much as how does the clinician like to work. So, um, let's talk a little bit about people who come from a faith background, whether it be, Christian, Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, Mormonism, like whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. We know that it can be really tough. Like if you have a really strong faith to go into therapy. So like, how, how do you work with people like that? Yeah. A lot of people that do come from a strong faith background, they can be very hesitant to come to therapy because They have been taught by their church or their temple or their mosque that everything should be dealt with one within the church and two in the context of their relationship with God. And so there can be a lot of guilt and shame, one for already struggling. And um, a lot of their faith leaders have told them that they're struggling because they haven't had enough faith or is there a sin issue? So for them, many of them are already struggling with the fact that they're struggling. And so it feels like coming to therapy means they don't have enough faith or it feels risky to go outside of the church. Um, And so that's unfortunate because when we all struggle and um, coming to therapy means you're sitting with someone that is trained to work with you on areas of mental health, your pastor or your faith leader is trained to help you in matters of spiritual health. On the perfect setting, the two would be integrated. I would hope that any of my clients that do come from a strong faith background would feel like actually their faith walk gets stronger as a result of therapy and doesn't take away from their faith walk. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a big concern for, for many people that feel like they're stepping outside of the church. I've had clients in the past that have stopped because they've, they've had their um, religious leader tell them that they should. Mm. And that's, it's really unfortunate. It's very unfortunate because it's, it's really a, it's a totally, it's a, it should be a separate conversation. Yes. Yes. I mean, how painful it is for someone that's struggling with a mental health issue to be told that it's a sin issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, the shame that comes from that. It's, it's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also seen pastors who get really excited because they have um, a congregant who um, is having a psychotic break and having hallucinations, but they don't know that that's what's happening. And they're all excited. Like, Oh, so-and-so is seeing God and they're having a vision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, the person of faith doesn't know. And I'm having to tell them because I have pastors that consult with me. This, this is not a spiritual thing. This is, they're needing some help. They're in crisis, but a pastor doesn't know. And I don't blame them for that, but because they are in a particular role of leadership, I do believe that they have the responsibility to educate themselves at least a little bit because, you know, they're in a position of leadership and many of the people in their church see them as having a certain level of authority. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's their job to teach and educate themselves just enough to know when they need to refer out <laughs> for help. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And we've like, we've had this conversation time and time again, because a, a few of the people that we've actually interviewed for this podcast have come from a really strong faith background. And one of the girls actually was talking about how for the longest time, like, she was asking for help and like going to people like, in her church community. And like, people were just telling her that she just needed to pray harder and pray like, a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when she finally did go to therapy, she realized like, oh my gosh, this is what I've needed all along. And she, it didn't like hurt her faith, but it helped mm-hmm. her like mental health, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's such like an important thing to think about and talk about. Like we talk about how spirituality is like a protective factor and all this stuff. And um, yeah, I just think it's really, it's such an important thing to talk about. Yeah. A lot of people do struggle with that. Mm-hmm. I think therapists have to be careful too. If they do have a client that comes to them and shares that they have a faith that's really special and precious to them, that the therapist wouldn't attack that, that they would understand how that is impacting their client's life. And, you know, if they're wanting to strengthen their faith, that the clinician would support that. Or if that's not an area that they have any understanding in, that they would you know, know their limits, but that they would support their client in their faith. And so that should be a safe place to integrate faith too. So, yeah, it seems like we need to do more work to try to integrate the two together. Yes, very much. So you see that work happening out there. I do with many of the therapists that I know. And then I've also, um, I've been an adjunct professor at uh, a Christian university and there are many persons of faith that do care about merging the two because they actually can complement one another very well. I mean, if we're talking about what helps somebody cope, the gift that faith can give when it comes to coping, um, is is can really be beautiful the the danger is again in religious circles that use faith to avoid 
mm-hmm. and that's where it's dangerous. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, we also, I don't know um, if from your client base, if you do a lot of work in the, in the black community, but that's one thing that we've talked about a lot is mm-hmm. trying to integrate more of that education that we're doing into the church community, because that's where a lot of those um, that, that trust resides. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, how do we, how do we educate in that space? And most of the most, you know, a lot of churches are very open to bringing that kind of education in to, um, to help their, to help their parishioners, but mm-hmm. we're not, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> no, unfortunately we have a long way to go. And a lot of that does fall on the pastor or the bishop or the clergy you know, they're kind of the gatekeeper for their congregation. So if the minister says, Hey, this is a good thing, people, right. Um, then, then everybody is going to listen. Our, our religious leaders have a big voice of influence. And unfortunately right now, I don't know that they're doing the best job with that. So when you're, um, when, when you, uh, are talking, like when you're educating and you're, um, it sounds like you're, a you're an educator at a college. So when you're talking, to young, <laughs> not currently, but yes, <laughs> when, you're, when you're talking to young people, um, what are some of the key elements that you like to see them go out in the world to, um, in this space that they're talking to their clients or they're talking to their family about, um, well, I'm not sure how to directly answer that question, but when I'm sitting with young people, I think the big thing that I want them to understand is that we have so much pressure on decision-making in our early twenties and it is a crucial decade, but so many 20, 21, 22 year olds feel like they're already behind, that they're missing out, that life has passed them by, that they don't have enough of their stuff together and bless their hearts, the anxiety that it causes. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time figuring out what direction we're going to take our lives. Some of it's intentional and some of it is accidental and some of it comes through relationship. And so when I, you know, when I'm sitting with young people, helping them understand that, what are we rushing to get to Mm -hmm. that? We can sit back just, just a little bit. Yeah. We actually have, we actually have done pretty extensive um, research with um, some schools here in Cincinnati to figure out with Mm -hmm. kids, where is that pressure coming from? And Mm -hmm. how do you start to take some of that pressure off? Um, and we are we're we're starting a program that's called uh, Changing Hearts and Minds in Cincinnati, where um, you, you're starting early with the parents to educate them about the kinds of questions they're asking their kids, the kinds of pressure that they're putting on them to really start to change that, because I think it's so important. Because if you look at the numbers with youth mental health and mental wellness, it's 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 a little it's frightening. But I think the earlier we start to have that conversation and we really change our mindset about what's important, we don't mm-hmm. ask, we don't, we don't put so much pressure to go to an elite school, to have straight A's, yes. to do all of those kinds of things that you really understand what's, what's good for that child and what's mm-hmm. going to keep them healthy. They don't need to look like everyone else. They don't need to be cookie cutters. 
no, college is so overrated, people. <laughs> you know, some of the some of the things that we want to do, we unfortunately must have a degree. But there are so many different ways to make our way in the world, and college is just one of them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's it's important, but not that important. Everything in balance. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I hope that we, I hope we can get there. I hope that we can start that conversation and get people to look at it a little bit differently. I hope so. Our kids will be much healthier. Yes. Yes. For my own children, they are very under scheduled and I live in Orange County, California. And so the culture here is very, very over scheduled. I mean, everybody's in sports, everybody's in music lessons, everybody's in this and that. And I don't know how healthy it is to keep our children out until 7 p.m. at night. Those are very long days. Kids need space to play and imagine and be bored. And so do teenagers. So sometimes I have to anchor myself and not get anxious because I'm one of the few parents that doesn't have their kids in a million lessons. But and how, how, old are, how old are your children? I have a 10-year-old daughter, a six-year-old daughter, and a two-year-old son. Okay. So they're still fairly young. Yes. So do you have very much pushback from them that they're not um, they're not doing it the way everybody else does? No, my 10-year-old will sometimes... Yeah, I think she's happy. I've talked with them about, do we want to do more things? And they really don't. Yeah. My husband and I have set the stage and just said, we do one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And in my perfect world, it would be one child does one thing at a time, just because I want to have family night and play and eat dinner together. And um, especially as a full-time working parent, when I'm home, I want to be with the kids, not taking them to jujitsu. So really, no, they don't, they would rather play. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a beautiful, wonderful thing that you, um, that you are giving them that, that space, letting them, I'm trying, letting them be kids. Yeah. Yeah. Setting them up to like be able to do that themselves later on in life. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. So I am actually kind of curious. This conversation has made me think like, do you work at all or a lot with parents in your practice? When I have children or teenagers, I try to incorporate the parent. Um, It is really interesting which parents want to be involved, which parents want to be over involved, which parents say, here's my child, fix them. But again, I have the kid for maybe one or two hours a week, but they go home to their family for the rest of the week. So I have to have the parents on board. I try to incorporate parent coaching now and then. I tell the parents, if your kid's going to work with me, please expect to have at least one or two sessions by yourself with me. Um, And so I really want to help the family unit as a whole, especially for a teen, because they still have to survive their parents. Yeah. Yeah. We're all doing our best. You yeah. know, now that I'm a parent, I, I have so much grace for how challenging it is, but also the weight of the responsibility that it is. So yeah, yeah. I try to have the parents in, in as appropriate. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think it's, it's a, it should be a team effort. Yes. 
And it's really yeah. good to have a professional as part of the uh, part of the equation that somebody is is asking challenging questions and listening mm-hmm. to both to both parties. <laughs> yes, it's challenging too because the real hot spots for parents and parenting say often more about the parent than they even do about the child. So if I, I see parents that start to panic because their child doesn't have any friends and come to find out, of course, the parent never had any friends. And so you're watching these parents have almost like reliving their heartbreaks or their hurts or their own fears, or they're repeating their family patterns too. So, mm-hmm. um, oh, in the perfect world, everybody would be in therapy. Yeah. If we wanted faster healing, but. I understand therapy is costly. Mm -hmm. Um, Time is precious. And so it doesn't always work out perfectly, but Mm -hmm. yeah. It is really interesting that you bring that up though, um, because we, we recently did a podcast. I keep bringing up these other podcasts that we did. Sorry. It's okay. They must've been really good. Kayla. I I love doing the podcast. So like, it's all I think about. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But we, we did recently do a podcast um, with, an individual who was talking about um, his experience with adoption and like childhood Mm -hmm. trauma. And he was talking Mm -hmm. about that like generational trauma and how Mm -hmm. um, his experience was so negative as a child because his parents' experiences were like negative as children and like their parents' experiences and like on and on and on. And it just, that's something that I personally have had the privilege to never have have had to think about. Can you talk a little bit about like that generational trauma and how you see that playing out a little bit like in, in your own practice? Sure. Well, I mean, there's various forms. So it could be as simple as a client calling in and saying, um, you know, I said I would never do what my mother did. And here I am. And that could be something as simple as like considering divorce or whatever. And then I have clients where, you know, some of them, there's such a a steep history of alcoholism in their family or sexual abuse and in throughout the generations, um, or it can just be more low key. I don't want to downplay anybody's struggle, but there can be things that take place on more minor scales, like maybe, you know, oh, feelings of like purposelessness. And I can sit with my individual client and they can think back and I'll ask about their parents and their family history. And many times they are experiencing things that they have observed their mother experiencing or their father experiencing. Our parents are our first experiences of the world. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, even though we may experience unpleasant things in our home, we tend to reenact them. You know, it's like unhealed wounds. And we just have this repetitive compulsion where, golly, if something isn't quite solved, we want to recreate it so we can get a solution. Darn it. The only problem is, is we have no new material to work with. So we're doing the same thing with our same coping skills and we just hurt ourselves over and over. And so a lot of that has been passed down. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and what would you say is like, I mean, obviously this is not trying to be like a therapy session, but what would you say sure. is like 
good way to kind of try and break that cycle? Well, the first thing is being aware of it. I mean, if you don't know that it's even there, nothing is going to change. Um, Two, if we're talking about intergenerational stuff, someone has to approach therapy and be prepared to set down their defensiveness of their parents. And that can be really challenging, especially when for families where there is one air quote good parent and one air quote bad parent. It's really easy to throw shade at the shitty parent. And that makes sense. Nobody would get mad at you for hating the mother that walked out on the family. But how much harder it is to be curious about the father that stayed. Oh, no, he's good. He's the hero. And he may darn well be the hero. Mm -hmm. But there is no perfect parent. And so if somebody really does want to understand they have to be prepared to engage dethroning their parents. And that can be honestly very, very painful for some people, very painful and um, takes time. You know, your therapist should be like a mirror for you. You should be able to go and see yourself better. Mm-hmm. The roles of parents too, ideally they're helping their children from a young age collect their thoughts and organize their thoughts and validate their feelings. And if a kid hasn't gotten that, then they turn into teenagers or adults that still don't know how to organize their own thinking or to calm themselves down. Those are not things that we're born knowing how to do. Those are skills that are learned. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of going to a therapist is that they help teach you to organize your thoughts and they help you to learn to calm yourself down. We're not born knowing how to do that. So it's okay to come and get a little help and then you'd be dependent on your therapist for a little while and then you go off and you don't need them anymore. Right. You learn the coping skills and then you can do it you can do it on your own until yep. next time around and <laughs> yeah. back for a little tune up. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Dude, life is a series of ups and downs. It is absolutely it is. yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, you explained that beautifully. That's a good way to end with that, that, that explanation of, of what therapy should look like. I like it. Good. Yeah. Well, Emily, thank you for being with us today. We learned, we liked uh, learning about your, um, how you got into this field and um, how you work with families and, um, and marriage, different marriages and what's that looks like. So thank Thank you. you. Yeah, it was so nice to be here with you and all of your listeners. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we are changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time. You belong.